when I was 16 years old, almost 17 years old, I had a blue Ford Ranger, 1994 blue Ford Ranger. It was stick shift. And I made my way down to Gurdon, Arkansas. And my younger friend, I'll be 41 next Sunday. He's not quite that old, but he's getting close to 40. Close. He wanted to drive that. And when you don't know how to drive a stick shift, you know, you shaking all over the place. And but last night, he took me over to the land. He's driving in a Jeep, and I just flash back to, in my head, I still feel like that I'm 16, 17 years old, but my body says, nope, you are not. This morning, my wife sent, sent a video. Today, my son goes into the youth group, and he is singing a solo in the choir. So she said, you do your own thing. I'm staying here. And um, she sent me a video, and, and I was just watching him in practice. He was just worshiping God. Just worshiping God. And I think about where God brought me from. And I think about the, the building that's going to be built and, and where God... When I take inventory of my life, even after I was, I was saved... I don't deserve the blessings of God, but yet he just keeps pouring out. How many in here can agree with me if it had not been for the Lord who was on my side? If it wasn't for his infinite mercy and grace that was continuously poured out of my life, I honestly don't know where I would be. God plucked me out of a a home that was broken up by drugs and alcohol. I should be doing the same cycle, doing the same thing, but yet here I am this morning looking at a video of my young son lifting up the name of Jesus. Driving last night looking at a property that God blessed and did a miracle for. And I'm thankful for his good goodness. Amen. There are, there are two competing ideas within the Christian faith that are absolutely just killing us. They're just killing us. They are on polar opposite side, but both are soul crushing. They're vexing. The first one is the idea of perfection. Whenever I come to the Lord for the first time, I knew that I had absolutely nothing to offer him and that I could not save myself. But after that moment, I set on a course of thinking that I would earn my own salvation and that one day that I would have it all together and continuously failing the Lord. So the idea of that I'm going to get it together one day is absolutely soul-crushing. I will never be good enough for God. That's why he did what he did. And the second idea is that what I do doesn't matter. That the Bible is not authoritative, it's suggestive that it's a list of suggestions in my life and I don't have to submit to it. I don't want to line up to it. And it kills us and it robs us from the joy that God would have us live in serving Him. And those are two polar opposite sides. I want you to know, I will never be good enough. I will in our minds today, we have an ideal version of ourselves that has it all together, that has some habits broken and all that, and that's the person that God loves. No, he loved you right now. 
but he wants good things for your life, and that's why he gives you his word. And he wants you to repent of the things in your life. Amen? James chapter 5, you don't have to stand. I'm going to read this to you. It is a verse that, that you will know as soon as I start reading. I'm going to read from the ESV. It's very similar to the KJV. In this verse of Scripture, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one that is sick. We usually put a period right there and talk about how God can heal. But look what happens. He says, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That's the healing of the body. Now watch this. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So he's saying that there's a healing of the body, but there's also a healing of the soul. There is something powerful about confessing and repenting that I don't know that we spend a lot of time explaining. I'm going to hone in on whenever there are two pillars of the gospel that you got to visit in order to have true freedom in your life. And we're going to be talking about those today. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm thankful for your goodness. Thankful for your kindness, God. Thank you for all that you have done for me. I pray, God, that you would begin to stir our affections, our minds, our hearts. God, help us to leave this place free and whole. And everybody say, in the name of Jesus, amen. Won't you clap your hands unto the Lord? I want, I don't know about you, but I, I want deep change in my life. I'm not just talking about surface level change. I need some deep change in my life. It's not enough for me to know in my head what needs to be done. It's not enough for me to just confess it with my mouth, but I actually want to live it out in my heart and live it out in my life. Gideon um, wrought a great victory for the people of God. He is the one that God came down and visited and said, Thou mighty man of valor. And he had given every excuse why in the world the Lord could not use him. And, and all of the fleecing and all of the things that he tried to talk God out of using him, God still used this man to face. It was just a handful of men that went out and fought an army of the Midianites that could not even be numbered. And they didn't even have a sword in their hand. They didn't have, all they had to fight this huge army was just a handful of men. And they had a lantern, they had a pitcher, and they had a trumpet. If I'm going to go to war with just a few people, um, give me a bomber or something. Here you go, here's a trumpet. Appreciate that, Lord. And yet, God performed a mighty victory for them and worked on their behalf and the children of God never even raised one sword or anything. The enemy decimated one another. And when Gideon comes back from this battle, from this fight, they want to make him king. And he says, no, no, we can't do that because our God is king. He is saying the right things with his mouth. He knows what is right in his mind. 
But yet then after that, he causes the people, he demands a ransom until people bring him all kinds of money and make him super wealthy. Then he marries all kinds of women and he has a bunch of concubines and he has a bunch of children with them. The only ones that did that during that day were kings. And one of the children that was born to him from one of the concubines, it wasn't even his wife, they named him Abimelech, which means my father is king. So he was saying out of his mouth, no, God is king, but yet in his heart, he was not living it out. I don't know about you, but I don't want to just confess something with my mouth. I want deep change in my life that is rooted and it begins to stir me and lets me walk how God wants me to walk. Amen. So I, I know that school is starting and, and I want you to go into your schools and I want you to turn them upside down. I want people to go into the workplaces. I want Jonesboro, Arkansas to be teeming with revival and the Holy Ghost moving. I want all of that. I, and we're going to be talking about that next week. But, but more than anything, more than anything, my desire for you is for you to stand in front of God. And my desire for myself, the, whatever I do in the kingdom, whatever that is, that's great. But I want to stand in front of him one day and hear him utter the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want to make heaven my home. Now, he wants you to be a part of, of the kingdom, it's not, it's not an option for you. He commanded for you to go out and make disciples, and I want you to do all of that, but I want you to make it to heaven. To repent, the term means to turn around and continue in the opposite direction. It's a 180-degree turn. It's turning away from the things that God hates, and it's turning towards the things that God loves. And whenever you repent, God, and I'm not going to talk about all three of these levels this morning, but God is, are you in a hurry? Everybody all right? God is going to lead you into three different levels of repentance. The first thing is things, things you're doing, you're not doing. It's, and it's easy. It's easy to see that. He'll lead you into repenting of things. The second thing uh, is attitudes. And the third thing is motives. Sometimes you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Right? It's like you're going to get something out of it. You know that. So you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. But before we dive into repentance this morning, I want to talk to you about a man by the name of James Smith. James Smith graduated from Walter High School in 1967. From there, he went to Sam Houston State. And he got his degree. And then he um, had a long, successful career and he's been married to his high school sweetheart, Sherry, for over 30 years. He has two grown children who are also married. He has a son by the name of Jeremy. He has a daughter by the name of Tiffany. And um, he's a bit of a social conservative. So when you think about politics, he's going to be on the conservative side of things. He's staunchly pro-life. And he's not a fan of liberal politics at all. Um, he has a John Deere tractor, and he is happy and proud for a man his age. He still mows his own lawn. <laughs> he has a great sense of human humor, but the real crown jewel of his life are his seven grandbabies. Anybody here, you got grandbabies and say, raising kids was cool, but grandbabies, that's where it's at. Sugar them up and send them home. 
He loves those grandbabies. And if they're involved in a sport or they're in a play or they're singing somewhere, he and Sherry are there and they're in the crowd and they're, you know, they're yelling at umpires and we're getting fight with, with other grandparents in the stands, you know, and he's like, that's my baby, you better back off, you know. And so they're, they're selling. Now you're laughing, you know that's the truth. Then they celebrate him when they, they make good grades and all of that. So he loves those grandbabies. And, and here's what I love about, about him is that he finds out what they really like. And I love that he does this. He, he finds out what they really like. And so one of his grandbabies, he, one of his granddaughters, he took her to New York City and he took her to what is called high tea. Now, when I say high tea, I'm not, I'm not talking about if you got up this morning and you popped open the Keurig and stuck one of those things, that's not what I'm talking about. It's real swanky kind of experience. It's real. So this is high tea. I love that he does this. He, he's all in on those grandbabies. He has a dog by the name of Oliver that is a golden doodle, and that golden doodle weighs 36 pounds. And uh, recently they had uh, the dog neutered because he was a little crazy. So they thought if we did that, maybe he'll stop wilding out so much. We're going to calm him down. So I have a real quick confession to make to you. I have no idea who James Smith is. If you go on Siri or Google and you ask, what is the most common name for a male in the United States of America, they will shoot back James Smith. If you go on Facebook, you can find this man, James Smith, who goes by the name of Jim. This is who I introduced to you today. Now, social psychologists will say, I don't know Jim, James. I know about him. And because I know about him and facts about him, if I saw him, now he's going to be really weirded out if I do this, but I could walk up to him and I could move smoothly into a conversation with him and say, hey, Jim, how's it going, man? So you've been retired for three years. How's that going for you? Uh, uh, now, are you bored with that? Are you really enjoying that? Sherry, that's really cool. Some of the different hobbies she's picked up, right? Oliver, has he calmed down since the surgery? You know, hot tea. Now that was awesome, right? And I could move into a, I could move into a conversation He's going to be really weirded out because he has no idea who I am. But I could move into a conversation with him because I know about him, but I don't really know him. If I'm going to know him, I've got to spend time with him, and I've got to earn his trust. And after spending time with him and earning his trust, then he's going to see my heartbeat that I love him and that I care for him. And there, then we can sit down at a table and stuff that he wouldn't share on Facebook. Then he could begin to tell me his concerns about his grandbaby or concerns about his kids and he with tears in his eyes he could tell me about the fears of the future that he has because then I have moved into a relationship with him a bulk of our relationships are just what I described we know about people but we don't know them because we know about them you know a lot of times if you went to high school with somebody you didn't see them for 20 years you didn't know anything about them but now we can move back into a conversation because here we are distance miles away from us but yet we can see what's going on in their life but we don't really know them now and we don't know their struggles now and we don't know their heartbeat now in order to have that happen I have to spend time
time and have a relationship. Here is what I'm afraid of, that we know about God and we can check off things about him and what he's done and a list of things that he wants and he doesn't want, but we don't really know him. And because we know about him and we don't really know him, when he asks us to repent and turn from certain things, then we can judge him as saying, all you want to do is control my life and all you want to do is just make things horrible for me. But when you spend time with him and you have spent time with him, you realize that he loves me more than anybody else could love me. He cares for me better than anybody else could care for me. And by spending time with him, you can realize he never wants anything from me that won't be a benefit to my life. Every command from God, everything that he asks me to repent of and turn away from, it is for his glory. And the reason it's for his glory is because it's for my joy. Literally, when God asks me to not or to do something, it is literally good for me and brings joy in my life, even though I might not understand it. There are over 400 verses in the Bible about singing. There are 50 explicit commands where God tells his people, it's not an option, Sing. Now, when you're looking at that, and that looks a little weird, right? Don't murder, don't steal, sing. <laughs> don't touch another man's wife, all that other stuff, and sing. And when you read that, you're just kind of like, what in the world is going on? But here is what we know in 2021. They did a study back in 2005, what happens in the human body when individuals join together in corporate singing. And that can be at a concert, that can be at church, that could be in a choir. And what they have found is that the endorphins and the certain things in your body that actually make you feel good and happy, they're actually elevated and, and that lasts for hours and after hours after you leave that concert or you leave the church. And they also have found that the, the different levels of hormones in your body that actually make you sad, like cortisol and all of that, they're suppressed and they're pushed down. And literally, people that are in depression, if they'll go and they'll sing with other people, it will lift them out. Even for just a moment, it will lift them. So literally, even though they did not know this, whenever he was commanding them to do this in the Bible, literally, singing was good for them. And there are times in the Bible that I will read certain things and I'm like, I don't know about that. And I don't, why would he even ask me? Well, because even though I don't know it, God is bringing joy in my life. It is literally good for me. Every command of God is good for me. Good for me. I'm not going to preach, at least I don't think so, a long time today, but I'm after your joy today. I'm after your joy. The enemy can really beat us up good, can he? When there, are, there is true repentance in someone's life, when there's true change, when there's deep change, there are always two pillars that you must travel to. You must visit each one. One side is that I am completely accepted and loved by Christ. And the other side 
is that I am more sinful than I could ever imagine. I have more in my life today that I don't even know about that's there. And God will reveal it as it's time. I am more sinful than I can ever imagine in my mind. And only when I'm convinced of this side will I ever have enough faith and bravery to visit the other side and actually deal with things in my life that shouldn't be there. Only when I am completely convinced that I am completely accepted in Christ, that he loves me no matter what. So many of us, we try to earn his love and we try to earn his approval. You are already accepted, you are already loved, and you're already approved of by Christ. He loves you with an everlasting love. And only when you're convinced of that will you ever have enough faith to come over here and actually deal with the junk in your life that shouldn't be there. The high priest in the Old Testament would go to the holiest of holies. And as he went in there, he would put on an ephod. And on that ephod, it would have the 12 stones with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on it. These stones were beautiful stones. They were costly stones. They were absolute treasures. And if you begin to peel back the past of each one of these tribes, they had hideous things in them. They had sins and all kinds of junk that they had in their life. But whenever the priests would come and present the names of Israel before the Lord, the light of God would begin to flash on those, those stones, and it would be absolutely beautiful. And he would not see them in their sin and in their folly, but he would see them as an absolute treasure. He would see them as an absolute beauty. He loved them with an everlasting love. Now you are the treasure of God. And we're written on the heart of God. Jesus is our high priest. And Jesus doesn't see us in all of our sin and all of our folly, but he sees you as an absolute treasure that he loves with all of his heart. It is in Matthew that he said that there was a man that was going through a field who found a treasure. And when he found the treasure, he went and sold everything that he had so he could buy the field. He bought the field so he could have the treasure. And all of my life I have heard that we are the ones going through the field and when we found Jesus, we found a treasure. And that is not the case. No, Jesus was going through the field and he found a treasure. And you know who that treasure was? It was you. And for the joy, he went back and sold everything. He gave his entire life so he could buy the field so he could have the treasure, which is you. Hebrews 12 says, Wherefore, seeing we're also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and set down, was set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so in one hand, Jesus had the shame of being stripped and being able to be crucified on the cross. He had the sins of humanity all there. He weighed that in one hand and in the other hand he had you that he considered a treasure. And for joy he said that you outweigh every bit of the shame, all of the torment, all of the sorrow. I will give everything I have to buy the treasure which is you. 
which is you. It's in the book of Exodus that God reaches into the land of Egypt. And he begins to pull his children out with a mighty hand. There's the 12, there's the 10 plagues that he sent out. It was the flies, the locusts, frogs, all that stuff that he did. He reaches in and he pulls them out. And then he leads them the long way and he parks them right in front of the Red Sea. Then the Egyptians come after them. You know the story. And as they're coming after them, there's a whirlwind of fire that comes down that separates the children of Israel from the Egyptians. And then what does God do? He breathes on the Red Sea that it opens up over one mile wide. Then he dries up the seabed. Sometimes we'll read stuff and like, it's no big deal. I mean, he opened up the Red Sea, dries up the seabed. They walk across on dry land. And then after they're almost all the way through, he pulls the whirlwind of fire up. And the idiot Egyptians who have already suffered 10 plagues and have seen a whirlwind of fire come down, saw the Red Sea open up over one mile wide, decided to march them happy selves right through that Red Sea. And as they are in the Red Sea, the Lord just kind of takes his breath back and the walls of water fall down on them. And God destroys the enemies of God like that. On the other side, Miriam gets a tambourine out. And as the bodies are floating in the water, they begin to sing a song unto the Lord. And as they're singing a song unto the Lord, they're talking about the Lord has destroyed both the chariot and its rider. Begins to talk about the power of God and in his might. But when it talks about how he led them, it says that he has led them in his steadfast love. When he, he was reading today, 2 Chronicles 20 and 21 through 22, that word that says, and his mercy, they begin to talk about his mercy, and then they sang unto the Lord. They always made sure they were covered by mercy before they begin to sing praises unto the Lord. When you read that in the ESV, it always translated the steadfast love of God. Sometimes it translated mercy, but a lot of times it's called the steadfast love of God. That word steadfast love comes from a Hebrew word called hesed. It has a very specific meaning, and this is the very first time it's used in Scripture. He has led us with his steadfast love. That steadfast love means the committed, the committed love of God. It is not an emotive feeling. It is not something, a fluttering of the heart. It is not something that is haphazard. It is a committed love of God. It is the word picture we get when a man and a wife, on the day of their wedding, they'll come down the aisle and they'll hold hands and there they'll begin to make crazy promises to one another. In sickness and in health, I do. For richer, for poorer, I do. All of that kind of stuff. And oftentimes they can't keep their promises. But God is saying, in sickness and in health, when you're doing what you need to do, I'm in. I'm committed to you. But even when you're not doing what you need to do. I'm still committed to you and I still love you in sickness and in health. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm committed to be on your side because I love you with an everlasting love. 
they needed to hear this because it wouldn't be but two weeks after this that they would have all of their clothes ripped off and they'd have a golden idol that they had made and now they're singing to this golden idol as the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. This is the God that they sang to. It was a false God and they needed a God that whenever he was displeased with what they were doing we said, I'm still in. I'm not going to leave you. I'm still committed to you. How many times in your life have you promised God I'll never do this, I'll never do that only to find yourself doing it again thank God for the committed love of God that when I'm doing everything I need to do he's in and you're beginning to read that history of Egypt of Israel whenever they right after that they begin to make the house of God they begin to put the, the places of the, all the posts where it needs to go. And the Bible said that the moment that they drove in the last stake, uh, that the presence of God came and dwelled with them. It was God with them in the wilderness. When you're reading that in the Hebrew, it was like God was hovering and he could not wait. He was anxious. Even all that they had done, he could not wait to be with his people. And the moment that they drove the last stake into the ground, boom, Boom, the presence of God. The enemy would like to tell you that in your mistakes and in your folly and all of the junk that you've done, that God wants to leave you. His presence doesn't want to be with you, but you are one prayer away. You are one hand lifted up away from the presence of God being back in your life and touching your heart. He loves you with an everlasting love. Isn't that crazy? He is fully committed to us. He loves us with an everlasting love. He's not in love with a future version of you. He's not in love with somebody who's got certain habits and things that you've done in life. No, he loves you right now in all of your mistakes and all of your folly and all of your hangups. He loves you with an everlasting love. And the problem is, is we keep trying to earn our own salvation. We keep trying to say that one day I'm going to get it all together and one day I'll be able to earn his affection. You never will. You'll never be good enough for God. And so what we start doing is we start comparing ourselves among ourselves. Like, you know what? I'm doing better than Nasser. <laughs> and you go over here and you say, oh, I'm not doing, what you mean? I'm not doing as good as Austin. And we start comparing ourselves among ourselves and we constantly go through this guilt, this cycle of I'm doing good, I'm not, but by who we're around. When, when Bryston was three years old, he's almost four, I remember people would say all the time, man, he is, he is strong for, for a three-year-old. He is he's smart for a three-year-old. He's really smart. And he was really smart and he was really strong when he was around other three-year-olds. But the moment that I walked into the room, he became dumb and weak. Bring it. What's eight times eight? And so if I'm comparing myself and my righteousness to other people, 
constantly doing that, I'm going to feel guilty or feel good. But the moment that Jesus walks into the room, where all of our righteousness becomes as filthy rags, nobody's doing good. And if it's not, all of us have fallen short to the glory of God. And if God is not as merciful as I think he is, we're all in a lot of trouble. But thank God, he loves me and he cares for me and he wants to be with me. Somebody thank God for his mercy and his grace. I'm going to lift the Lord up right now and thank him. Oh, my goodness. It's in the book of Revelation and they song that was popularized by these verses of scripture here recently. John. There's this scroll. They start frantically looking for somebody to open the scroll. They looked on the earth, they looked beneath the earth, they looked in heaven, they looked all around. And they couldn't find anybody that was worthy to open the scroll. John fell down and began to weep. An angel came down and tapped him on the shoulder and said, Look! It's an elder that came down rather than tapped him and said, Look! And the Lamb of God came down and opened the scroll. And they began to cry out that he is the one that's worthy. And they began to worship him. And simply what that is saying is that there are things in your life that you'll never be able to overcome. There was a life that you could not live. It was an impossibility to overcome the sins and the hang-ups and all of that stuff. Who in the world can overcome it? Only the Lamb of God. He came down and fought the battle for you. He did what you could not do. He lived the life that you could not live. He accomplished what you could never accomplish. And after he had accomplished it, he brought it to you and said, whoever wants it, let him come and take of the waters of life freely. You don't have to earn it. You just have to receive it. You have to receive it. If you're not convinced by the love of God, if you're not convinced by the goodness of God, if you're not convinced of that, you're going to be like Adam and Eve who whenever they messed up instead of running to God, they ran away from Him and there they became afraid and they became shameful. And I know so many people that have lost out on their walk with God. They're backslidden right now because they could never get it together and the enemy had convinced them it was their job and whenever they messed up in their life instead of running to Him, they ran away from Him and now they're life is full of shame you have to be convinced of the love of God and only only when you're convinced of the love of God will you ever have enough faith to travel to the other side and say I have more things in my life that need to be dealt with, dealt with than I could ever imagine. Only when I'm convinced of the love of God will I ever have enough faith to confess and open up and let the Lord begin to heal what He wants to heal. 
And so what we do is we distance ourselves from our sin. Instead of owning it, and I know there's going to be people that disagree with this. I'm okay with that. We distance ourselves from it. So whenever we tell lies, we're like, oh, sometimes I've been the truth because I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Sometimes I don't, I don't say what is true. No, you're a liar. See the difference between those two? One of them tries to distance yourself from your sin. The other one says, this is what I am and I don't like it and I want to get over it. It's not that I look at certain things every once in a while on the internet that I shouldn't know. I have a porn addiction. You see the difference between those two? One of them says, I own this. And when you have enough faith, when you believe the love of God, then you can say, this is what's wrong in my life and I'm tired of carrying it. There is no freedom in people's lives to those who are constantly hiding and never admitting what is really wrong in their life. I knew it'd be quiet. If you want to have freedom in your life, you're going to have to learn to visit that stuff and say, I got bitterness in my life because of what somebody did to me. And now it's ruining other relationships. And the Lord is calling me out from that because he wants joy in my life. I got fear, uncontrollably just fearful all the time and it's ruining my sleep. You know, the Lord told you he didn't give you that spirit. If he didn't give you that spirit, it came from somewhere else. That is the spirit that is gripping us today. Fear, fear of everything. Fearful. Robbing us of our sleep. And only when I can admit that in my life will God ever be able to have the opportunity to free me of it. That's in the book of Acts. where the church of Ephesus is started. That Paul spends a lot of time teaching Bible studies. But there are other times where he looks at people and he just speaks to a spirit, a demon that's inside of them, and he frees people that are demonically possessed. And in that town, I promise you, I'm getting close to being done. There are, we don't even know their names, but they're called the seven sons of Sceva. Sceva is a itinerant exorcist, meaning that it was his full-time job to go find people that were demon-possessed and cast devils out of them. I don't know what type of degree you got to have for that. But this was his job. And these seven sons of Sceva see the power that Paul walks in and see kind of what their dad has to do, and they say, you know what, we want to walk in that same power that Paul has. And so they find this man who is demon-possessed and they speak to him and say, by the God that Paul serves, in the name of Jesus, be free of this demon. This demonic man turns around and looks at them and says, Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. Who are you? I mean, it's, it's got to be a moment of complete panic. And this man leaps on them and beats the daylights out of them. 
that whenever they leave, these guys leave bloodied up and naked. Now, I've heard this said before, and I've adopted it. It's the absolute truth. If you come into a fight with pants on and you leave with no pants, you lost that fight. You know, a lot of times there are debates. I know we got my eye, but you should see the other guy. No, if you come in with pants, you leave with no pants, you lost. Here's what's interesting. That whenever the church of Ephesus saw the power that Paul walked in, and you read it, it said, then believers came. Not people that didn't know the Lord. didn't. No. Then believers came. Believers came and divulged of their practices. And they brought witchcraft books. And they bought all kinds of stuff that they'd been hiding in their home. And they brought it. And they had the first book burning in the Bible. They piled them up. They burned all of these things. And they began to repent. And they began to confess the stuff in their life. Now here's what's powerful. Is that when unbelievers saw that these people walked in that kind of faith. That said I believe in the love of God. That I'm not going to keep hidden all the junk in my life. But they came and divulged of their practices. And they laid it bare before the Lord. And said this is what I'm dealing with. Then revival broke out in that whole area. We know more about that church than any other church in the Bible. Timothy was an elder there. He pastored there. John was a pastor there. We got five books that are written in that from that area. We know more about that church. We hear about them and the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, the Lord is speaking to them and he says, unless you have left your first love and unless you go back and do what you did at the beginning, I'm going to remove my lampstand. I'm going to remove my power. I'm going to remove my hand from this place. And the only thing that you can find them doing is repentance and confession saying here is what we got in our life we have to have constantly in our life a life that says I'm going to confess I'm going to repent I'm going to get over this God this is what I'm dealing with this is what I'm struggling with and I lay it before the Lord and let him free me of it is anybody in here you're carrying something right now and you kind of been embarrassed by it and you just need the Lord to remove it from your life anybody you've had some stuff that you've told the Lord you're never going to do you find yourself doing again anybody has anybody ever had the enemy come in and tell you you're not loved by God look at what you're doing and when you come to church instead of coming to the Lord and lifting your hands you can't even lift your hands and lift your voice and worship because you got so much guilt and condemnation in your life anybody God wants you to be free of that. You got to have somebody. I'm not, I am not condoning going out there and getting on Facebook this afternoon and saying, well, preacher said I got to tell you about my problems and I've been hooked on crack for 18 months and no, no. Saying you find somebody that loves you. You find your pastor. You find somebody that, that you know has your back. And you say, I'm not going to fight this alone. And you let the Lord begin to heal the things in your life that is broken. My best friend in the world 
His name's Rory Chance. And we made up a decision, made a decision together a long time ago that we're just going to be honest with one another. We're going to lay things bare. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to help one another. So we've seen too many people that just stuff come out of nowhere and you're like, what in the world? And he knows me. There's nothing in my life that he can't ask for that I won't tell him the truth. If he called me today and said, Wes, I need to see your tax returns, I would give it to him. Because I can't be telling people to be generous with their money and not be generous myself. He's got it. He can do whatever he wants. He can have that. Because I refuse to walk in battles all by myself and fight alone and let the enemy just beat the trash out of me. A couple of years ago, he called me. And it was a very busy time in my life. I'm talking about I had said yes to everything in the world. I was preaching everywhere. I was doing everything for everybody. And I was tired and I was frustrated because I was just running on fumes. And I I never, I didn't know how to say no. I just said yes to everything that I possibly could. And I was wore out. And I was on the phone with him and he said, how are you? He said, I can hear something in your voice. And I said, man, I'm tired. He said, how does that playing out? I said, man, I'm not being a good dad right now. Where I used to go and tell my kids Sunday school stories before they'd go to bed and act it out with them and wrestle around on the floor. I'm just hoping they'll go to sleep because I'm so tired. I'm short with my wife right now. I feel entitled Bro, I'm just tired. He said, here's what you need to do. You got to cancel this, 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 and this. You got to get some rest in your life. He called and checked on me. He prayed on me and he prayed for me. And before I knew it, I was getting strength again. I was back in the floor with the kids again. I was doing all of those things that I needed to as a husband. And if I wasn't careful though, I could have let all of those things, good things, being out there ministering and all of that kind of stuff, I could have let it destroy relationships. But I had somebody in my life that said, what is wrong with you? What's going on in your life? What are you wrestling with? And in that moment, when I brought it out to the light why did I do that because I knew he loved me and I knew he wasn't going to be ashamed of me and I feel the same way about God if I got something in my life that isn't right I go over to that altar I'll go over to that pillar and say God I need you to cleanse my heart I need you to cleanse my mind I need you to cleanse me God there's some stuff in me that isn't right Because if I preach everywhere and I minister and I do everything that I can, but at the end of the day, I don't hear him say, well done. If I gain the whole world and I lost my soul, or if I raised kids that hated the church because I took, that made the church a priority over them, and now they're backslidden because of my relationship with them. What have I done in the end? Is that too honest for you? I'm trying to tear some things down in the spirit because the enemy wants to keep, keep it hidden in your life. He wants you to keep limping. 
He wants to keep beating the snot out of you to the point to where you just give completely up because you feel like you can't overcome it and you feel just like a hypocrite. I want you to know nobody's perfect and we're all, until we get to that point and we get to hear him say that we're always going to have a battle and we're always going to have a fight, but somewhere along the way, you've got to get some help from somebody and you've got to get help from him. You've got to be honest with him. I'm trying to stop, but the Holy Ghost is just gripping me right now. The lady came to Jesus and said, I need your help. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. He looked at her and said, it is not right for the master to give the children's bread to the dogs like you. And she could have got mad and she could have got frustrated and she could have walked away. But there was a point that she said, no, I've got something in my life that needs changed. And she just ponied up and said, that's the truth. That's exactly what I am. But it doesn't change the fact that I still need your help. And somewhere along the way, you've got to quit being offended by the preacher and you've got to quit being offended by the word and you've got to quit treating the Bible like a buffet line and saying I like this and this but not that no you've got to let the word change you you've got to let the preaching change you you've got to let the spirit change you and you've got to visit that and say I know he loves me and because he loves me I'm going to come down and say God here it is will you stand today I want you to lift your hands and your voice to the Lord for a moment Come on, that's it. Just let the Holy Ghost move for a moment. Everybody lift your voice for a moment. preached this one other time. I preached it at a maybe twice. Preached it at a large youth function. Before we started cut out all of these little cards that said I struggle. It was a nice struggle card. Before we started we just had things. I struggle with my calling. I struggle with anger struggle with depression. I struggle with thoughts of suicide. I struggle with pornography. There was just a list of stuff on there. And you circled it. You didn't put your name on it whatsoever. You just circled them. You circled them. You struggled with. Folded it up. Put it in the offering pan. The ushers mixed it all up. They switched sides. And they passed somebody a card that was not the original one. And at the end of this, I said, if this is circled on your paper, I want you to stand. I said, 
I struggle with thoughts of suicide. There was about 15, 16 people that were standing in that place. I struggle with pornography, people littered all over the place. Struggle with my calling, my purpose, people all over the place. Because it was in the ambiguity of people not knowing who I am that people felt like they could be honest, but what they saw is that I'm not alone. I'm not the only one dealing with this. And what the enemy will try to do to you is he'll load you down make you feel all alone and make you feel so guilty and feel so condemned that you're just crushed under the weight of that. A couple of years ago was the last day of school. There's a drive, there's a car drive that you would go into where you pick your kids up at. And whenever it's your turn, your kid came across the walkway, they would get in your vehicle, and you know, you know how like kid pickup lines are, they're stressful. You know, and you gotta keep that thing moving. So they had taken all of the stuff from that year that, that Weston had had done papers and all of that kind of stuff and notebooks and they had piled it up in a, in a big old box. And so I'm way in line waiting for my turn to pick him up and Weston is carrying that big load, that box of all of that stuff that was in there and trying to get across the street so he could save some time and as he was carrying that, it was just so heavy that he collapsed under the weight of that and he spilled all of that stuff out on the ground. Do you think that I rolled down the window and said, pick it up, boy? What a loser. You couldn't carry that. No, I didn't care what anybody thought. I didn't care how mad they got. It did not matter to me. You know what I did? I threw that car, I threw through that truck and parked. I opened the door up. I ran to where he was and I said, buddy, you just get in the car. I'll take care of this. And I started putting all of that and I took that weight and I carried it for him. And I carried it back. You want to know why I did that? Because I love that boy and you have a father in heaven that loves you and here you are carrying all of this junk and you're collapsing under the weight of it all. And you're wondering how in the world am I going to get it all together and you're going to spill it all on the ground and you're afraid he's just going to yell at you but the Lord's saying if you'll give me half an opportunity I'll come to where you are I'll clean it up for you I'll wash your sins away I'll touch your heart I'll pick up those weights you've walked in here with a lifetime of regret you're carrying all of that stuff. And he's saying, whoever wants to, if you'll come and lay that stuff down, just give me all of your burdens. If you'll do all of that, I'll, I'll take them from you. I'll take them from some of you in here. You've been abused by somebody in the past. You've been done wrong, and you've been carrying that. It's spilling out into other relationships, and you, you're just carrying that. I'm just telling you, you've got a God that loves you, and all you got to do is go to him, and you can dump all of that out. You can confess the stuff that you're going through. 
through. You can talk to him openly. You can tell him what's frustrating you. You can tell him what's breaking your heart. You can tell him that you're going through depression. You can tell him that you're fearful. You can lay it all down at the table and he's going to take it from you. He's going to love you regardless of what's going on in your life. You're just waiting for the opportunity. I wonder if there's anybody who can resonate with what I'm saying right now. You feel the Holy Ghost. If that is you and you want to make your way down to an altar, you just want to raise your hands right where you are. The Holy Ghost wants to do a healing work in this place today. Confess your faults one to another and He's going to heal you. He's going to forgive you. He's going to help you today. I'm going to lift your voice right now. Ah, Lord, let the Holy Ghost move in this place today, God. Let your spirit begin to flow in this house right now, God. I pray you would lift burdens. You would begin to move in minds and hearts. You'd begin to move in marriages that are just struggling right now, God. They're struggling. They're going to collapse. They're going to fall apart. But if they'll come to you right now and they'll begin to lay it out at your feet, God, you'll bring a healing in their marriage, God. You're going to heal their minds today. You're going to heal their spirits today. You're going to lift those burdens from them, God. You're going to free them from their sins right now.